listening to Uranium Sunrise. Uranium Sunrise is one of two songs on the most recent release from the Adam Jacks. The other song is called Mirage 4. The EP release is Mirage 4 slash Uranium Sunrise. You can find it at theadamjacks.bandcamp.com. And that's Adam as an Adam bomb. But I think you probably could figure that out. The Adam Jacks is a surf band based out of Brighton. And they've got a number of shows coming up. I want you to check out their Facebook page by looking up The Adam Jacks on Facebook. And they've got a number of what they call upcoming detonations, various shows happening over there in the UK. Go check them out when you're done listening to this episode of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. This is Monster Kid Radio, and I am your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. Big thanks to the Adam Jacks for letting us play their music here on the show. If you want to just check out their music, check out their Bandcamp page at theadamjacks.bandcamp.com. You can find this release as well as their previous releases as well. I dig it. And again, big thanks to them for letting us play them here on the podcast. This week, we are going to keep with that uranium atom bomb kind of vibe. And we're going to be talking about a movie in which somebody gets exposed to a bomb of some sort. We're going to be talking about a movie featuring, well, a colossal man. It's the amazing colossal man. I've even released a new t-shirt in the Monster Kid Radio Tee Public Shop promoting or supporting or honoring this week's episode and i'm going to be talking about this movie with my friend joe schultz joseph schultz is a visual effects producer and supervisor he's been involved in various film industry stuff for many many years and i'm just excited that he took some time to talk with me about the amazing colossal man this week on the show of course Unfortunately, uh, we did lose Mr. Big, Bert I. Gordon, the director, the creator of The Amazing Colossal Man, and a number of other amazing films, films that are the bread and butter of what we do here at Monstricted Radio. I, I would venture to say that the kind of movies that we love, they just wouldn't be the same, if not for Mr. Bert I. Gordon. Now, unfortunately, like I said, we did just lose him, and Joe and I are going to talk a little bit about that of course, we're going to talk about the movie and what this movie in particular means to Joe. And I want to thank Joe ahead of time for just taking the time to share his thoughts and his memories and his feelings about this movie and some things around this movie with us. It's a fun conversation. It goes on for about an hour. And honestly, if not for the fact that I had to get off the phone because I had a job interview coming up, I could have talked with him for another hour about this movie as well as its sequel. We, we don't talk about the sequel all that much, but, but anyway... That's coming up. And of course, we've got Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland and Mark Matsky's Beta Capsule review. I just want to get to it right now. So here we go. Rocket into outer space with the heroic astronauts daring to explore beyond the moon, beyond the outer limits of human adventure, beyond the barrier of human credibility. Fighting the unknown forces and secret terrors science couldn't predict. There's a monstrous thing aboard this station from the moon. That's what killed Weber. What kind of a monstrous thing? <coughs> Discover the monstrous horror from the moon, threatening to destroy everything it touches. The fiendish force that ignited the loves, the hates, the passions of the explorers in space. Oh, Gordon, I miss you so much. So lonely out here. 
these men around? Don't tease me, not now. The awesome adventure of the astronauts of Space Station X-7, the journey that controlled the destiny of the world. Suppose that space station gets out of control. Suppose it plunges toward Earth, carrying that deadly thing with it. Well, it should burn up when it hits the atmosphere. Yes, it should, but suppose one tiny fragment didn't. Space-age drama from tomorrow's headlines. The suspense, the drama, the terror of human beings facing a fiendish monster from the moon. Too incredible to believe, too gigantic to control, too mysterious for man to comprehend. This is mutiny. Mutiny in outer space. Nightfall, monstrous animals crawl out of crater of volcano. Great herds of cattle stampede before this living inferno. Vast area devastated by appalling new horror. A creature named the Black Scorpion by panic-stricken people of San Lorenzo. Entire population prays for deliverance. And for miles around, cowboys came upon one dead steer after another. One of them had heard the tale of the demon bull of the Maricopa having lost family or friends, something absolutely unknown. We could be in another world. Nation's leaders confer as news received a possible threat to capital. This is a city of four million people. If word of these leaks out, the panic of the population could be worse than the scorpions. The black scorpion destroys communications. Hundreds annihilated. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. Return of Ultraman, Episode 6, Showdown, Monster vs. M.A.T., first aired May 7, 1971. When we last left Ultraman, he was locked in mortal combat with Gudon and Twintail. However, his color timer runs out, causing him to dematerialize, depositing Go's body near the battleground. The monster attack team rescues him, but Go is ashamed, since he quit MAT. Minami and Ueno reassure Go that their bonds go deeper than that. Meanwhile, Twintail makes a break for the ocean with Gudon in hot pursuit, sparing Tokyo further destruction. Aki, who had been injured in the shopping district, is taken to the hospital where she remains in critical condition. Her brother Ken gives Go the shirt Aki had bought for him earlier that day, and moved by this gesture, he refuses to leave her side, even though his friends at MAT arrive, to persuade him to return to service. However, Aki stirs just enough to tell Go he should take his place at MAT, and he does, only to learn that Kaiju Gudan has resurfaced. The chief commander orders MAT to use the MN bomb on the monster, which they do, to no effect. 
With no options left, the commander greenlights the use of the Spiner, a weapon with the force of a hydrogen bomb. Since the blast will likely level Tokyo, an immediate evacuation takes effect, but Ken refuses to try moving Aki from the hospital and vows to stay with her to the end. Go and Captain Kato devise an alternate plan to take out the monsters, but the commander agrees to it under one condition. If they fail, the monster attack team will be disbanded. Showdown Monster vs. MAT is an exciting conclusion to Episode 5, cranking up the tension with the potential use of the Spiner weapon, generating much heated debate within the Defense Force. And this leads to some unexpectedly poignant moments, as Go's thoughts on the probable outcome are portrayed using photos of post-blast Hiroshima, while Ken Sakata openly reflects on the firebombings of Tokyo that took place during the war and the effect they had on his mother. These are easily the most direct references to the legacy of World War II made by an Ultra series thus far, and it gives this particular story an added sense of gravity. There's a sense of nostalgia as well, as Kenji Sahara reappears as an officer in conflict with MAT. Sahara helped launch the Ultra craze, playing pilot Jun Manjame in the series Ultra Q, the one that started it all, and in a recurring role as Commander Takenika in Ultra 7. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting. where the Superman of evil is king. Let no man face my seven curses and reach the dragon's lair. Together we will dare the demons of the green flame. See the white-hot face of the fiery rock. Enter the mammoth cave that closes behind you where humans are trapped entombed. Brave the volcanic inferno of the boiling crater. See the miracle of the magic sword. Battle the gigantic ogre. Gaze into the magic pool. See the enchanted beauty, enslaved by the master of the black arts. Meet Sybil, the weirdest witch who ever brewed up a cauldron of spells. I wonder what Sybil's cooking up. Witches of Hecate, black oven black, demons of shame, flesh on the rack. 
see the attempted rescue from the sorcerer's castle. See the terrors of the dungeon torture chamber. See the terrifying fate of the shrunken people cast under an evil spell by Lodak, greatest magician of them all. See the two-headed dragon of Lodak that no mortal ever faced and lived. You will be thrilled to the hilt by the magic sword, none like it since the world began. The 2,000-year-old legend Hollywood waited until now to tell. The magic sword. More frightening than his War of the Worlds. More imaginative than his time machine. Now, H.G. Wells' masterpiece of science fiction, The Food of the Gods. The terrifying tale of man fighting for his life against an ecology gone berserk. This is the last chance for an unsuspecting world against harmless animals and insects made huge and vicious by The Food of the Gods. Marjo Gordner. Pamela Franklin, Ralph Meeker, Ida Lupino, H.G. Wells' The Food of the Gods for a Taste of Hell, rated PG. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. In memory of the late, great Bird Eye Gordon, we are looking at one of his classics, The Amazing Colossal Man. Mr. Gordon had a long-term relationship with 4 and FM, and all of his monster movies received coverage in its pages. It all started with FM 1 from 1958, where Colossal Man was mentioned in a compilation article about space age and atomic monsters. Here is what it had to say. Amazing, stupendous, colossal. It was only a matter of time until a film was made about an amazing colossal man of average height at the beginning of the picture, the victim of a freak accident during the detonation of the first plutonium bomb had grown 80 feet tall by the final reel. In a heroic effort to save another man's life, it at first appeared that Colonel Glenn Manning had lost his own. The unprecedented blast seared every inch of skin from his body. The scene where he was charred before the camera's eye by the atomic explosion was a hair razor, and effectively reprised twice during the unfoldment of the film. Burned bald, and from head to toe, dehydrated and at death's door, Colonel Manning was given no chance to survive the night. But the next morning, an epidermic miracle. His skin had grown back without scar tissue, and his metabolism was nearly normal. Instead of a half-cremated corpse, he appeared to be a convalescent on the way to complete recovery. The baffled doctors could only conclude that the plutonium rays had some marvelous unknown powers to affect recuperation. A trouble set in when Manning not only recuperated, but started to grow at the rate of eight to 10 feet a day. Now, of course, at this point, one diminutive David in the person of a good modern technical advisor could have stepped in and, if listened to, stopped the giant Goliath dead in his tracks. He could have fractured the giant concept altogether. The Colossus couldn't possibly support his own weight. 
He'd have to spend all his time stuffing his stomach with fuel. His ears wouldn't function. He couldn't hear anything because of the thickening of his membranes in the Erie Canal, etc. Fault finder. Fun spoiler. Hey, Mr. Colossal Man. Stomp on that technical advisor. He's a no-good Nick Square from northeast of nowhere. Mash him down into jello pie before he ruins our nightmares. Next thing, he'll say there isn't any Santa Claus. The impossible amazing colossal man is about 80 feet tall before he's through and has taken giant steps through downtown Las Vegas, doing more damage than the one-armed bandits. The amazing colossal man meets his apparent doom at Boulder Dam, but the clink of coins at a healthy box office can often work wonders in reviving the deadest of monsters. And let's put it this way, I wouldn't be amazed to learn of a sequel. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next time. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. that made that print is about ten times the size of a normal man's. What happens to our world if massive, monstrous man-beasts like this invade us? Flown a captive to a West Coast metropolis in an army cargo plane, his arrival catapults the whole city into an ocean of fear. For this colossal beast is at war with the world, our world. A world his savage instincts can only hate. An airlift is being set up and food will be parachuted down to him. He'll be supplied with everything he needs. Get all the aircraft into the air at once. The Colossal Man is loose in Los Angeles. the civilized world in blood-freezing horror as the immeasurable power of this colossal beast threatens a war of brutality such as we've never known. More prophetic than his prediction of space travel in Things to Come. More imaginative than his laser beams in War of the Worlds. More frightening than his warning of nuclear holocaust in The Time Machine. From H.G. Wells, history's most credible prophet, now comes his most incredible story. Empire of the Ants. A terrifying tale of civilization fighting for survival against armies of giant ants ten feet tall who control the human population by drugging them into submission. And man, the master, becomes man, the slave. Joan Collins, Robert Lansing, H.G. Wells, Empire of the Ants, from American International Pictures. Rated PG, parental guidance suggested. Empire of the Ants. They shall inherit the Earth sooner than you think. This is Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. 
You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. As of this recording, the time is 2.37pm, 2 hours and 15 minutes before Time Zero. At Time Zero, a new type of atomic explosion, a plutonium explosion, will do something and make somebody colossal or something. I don't know. We'll talk about it. Uh, this is uh, an opportunity for me to talk to an old friend of mine, husband on the show in a long time, Joe Schultz. Joe. How you doing, man? Bye, Derek. How are you doing? Thanks for having me again. Uh, this is the second time in a decade, I think. Or... Right. It's been way too long, dude. Last time we did about Teenage Caveman, so... <laughs> That's true, and that was in the works for a long time. Well, we're moving on to bigger things. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. All right. All right. Yes, yes, we are. Much bigger things. Things that are at least 30, 40... I think at one point he gets to 60 feet tall, uh, tall right? Yeah, that, this, this uh, we're talking about the amazing colossal man, Bert Gordon, who, like, again, we had just lost. He turned 100 years old, and we lost. And um, this film definitely has meaning for me. Um, I know right off the bat, when my father was um, ill, one of the last times I saw him, I had the foresight to, we had this, um, he used to take me to a lot of these movies when I was a kid and watch him with me. He's very performative. Mm -hmm. And while he was in the hospital, the last time I saw him, I had the forethought to think uh, this might be it. And I basically made a compilation of the movies that we really remembered and liked to watch. And one of them was this movie, you know, The Amazing Colossal Man. And um, that's something that was really great for me for closure. And, 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 um, Again, he did pass away shortly after that, but it was, we had that fun and we were in the hospital um, and, um, you know, he was in the bed and I brought him these movies and we got the greatest laughs and everything else. And there was one particular scene where they have a huge hypodermic needle and the nurse was coming in there and we were ribbing her about the uniform she was wearing. Like it, she was like, we don't do that anymore. And everything she thought, but that's kind of flattery. And then, <laughs> then they have the needle, you know, they had to give my father the shot and we're seeing this giant needle, and she goes, you know, that would have been worse. And then the doctor comes in, and they're all given their, you know, they all get absorbed watching the amazing colossal man. It was something. Oh. It was something I'll never forget. But again, I, uh, it reminded me like when my time comes, I'm gonna do the same with my son and just make a playlist and say this is through that period. You know, the funny thing about it is, I remember when I told my pops about this stuff, and I know he liked these movies and had an affinity for them, but it all came from me. He got me an 8mm projector, um, 16mm, all that. But it all came from me. And I remember showing him these words and he said, oh, this is a stupid movie. He goes, and then he told me really that I realized that he might not have been so much into them as me, but he was doing it for me. Which which was even more impressive because I was like, wow, you know, that's, you know, you sat through these things that you maybe didn't, <laughs> like, tackle the crab monsters. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I'll put you through this again. But anyway, that that, that is specific... Um, you know, meaning for me, you know, for that. And if this was one of the sure. we chose. And, and again, it was a good way, you know, for that. So personally, that's something that sticks. And um, I first saw this movie at my Aunt Ginny's house. She was an illustrator for greeting cards in Rhode Island. And I was in New York. Okay. We went to her place in Rhode Island by the docks. And I remember I was sleeping on the couch and woke up and it was, what is it? Uh, Chilla Theater or whatever it was at the time. And um, 
started watching it. And, um, yeah, it, 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 you know, especially the beginning, it was pretty harrowing. Before it goes off the rails, which we'll discuss, you know, the beginning <laughs> of it was really tense and I was on the edge of my seat and I had these dreams of the beep, 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 and the beep stopping for a while. I <laughs> and we'll, we'll get to we'll get to that. So anyway, so that's my history with this movie before we basically discuss it and why it's, you know, important to me and has that special, you know, sure thing in there. Well, you know, when, when Mr. Gordon, when Brody Gordon passed, um, you know, I knew, and I know I didn't do a, like a monster kid radio episode for Rico Browning, but I did do a YouTube video for him. Uh, I didn't have the same connection with Brody Gordon as I did with Mr. Browning, but I, kn- I know that a lot of people did. And, you know, of course I liked his movies and all, and I did get a chance to meet him a couple of times over the years at monster batch, which, you know, he was always patient and always had time for all of his fans and people who wanted to talk to him and, that sort of thing. And I always thought that was cool that even at his advanced age, he would still show up at these things. He could barely hear, but he never stopped smiling. He always seemed to be having a great time. And that sense of joy and wonder is something that I've always picked up from all of his movies as well. Uh, before we started recording proper, you were kind of doing a little show and tell, showing me like some old VHS tapes. And the VHS t- copy of Amazing Colossal Man that you held up is how I first saw the movie. Uh, I was in the horror section, horror sci-fi section of the Blockbuster video that I worked at back in the 90s. And that's how I first saw it as I took it home and watched it. And I don't remember having like a huge reaction to it at the time. But I knew it was iconic because of you know, the amazing Colossal Man. It's a great title. and But over the years, I've watched it you know, over and over again. And yeah, it does go off the rails. He acts a little silly. And <laughs> I mean... Beth watched the second half of the movie with me. She came in and you know, she made a few comments. It's like, yeah, yeah, you're right. That doesn't make sense. But it's a movie about a 60-foot tall dude. So I, I think whether or not there's enough call letters on the helicopter t- you know, tail or whatever. I, I don't know <laughs> if it's correct. They say it almost makes it like where the people are less educated on scientific matters back then or they just didn't care. I think they just didn't care. And it was just... Yeah, you know, I I thought it was funny. Like there was so many tropes in there, like as they as they go. But again, this was this. Well, first of all, Burt Gordon came from Kenosha, Wisconsin. <laughs> you know, and he always wanted to make these kind of movies. And he said, you know, he it's funny because now with um, Mystery Science uh, three thousand covered a lot of his movies. He's been attributed sometimes to like an Ed Wood kind of a vibe. Huh. And the only thing I could say about that in, in his defense is that, again, you can't... I wouldn't judge somebody as far as the final result. The fact that he reached out, outside and did a lot of these movies with the imagination that he said, these are the movies, that, you know, people have brought that up. These are the movies I want to make. I don't know whether or not I'm going to be able to pull them off or not. I'm going to still get what I want in my head on the screen, whatever it takes. I'm sure. Very limited money, very limited resources. Um, a lot of them were sloppy as far as the effects where it goes, you know what I mean? Like, um, mask and masks, which we'll talk about, but just to have the audacity and say, I want to put this on screen. I'm going to show this imaginative stuff, which he could have just played it easy and said, let me just put a monster in makeup. But he's like, I'm going to do this giant kind of stuff. He kind of developed this technique on his own, which, which had been done for years. But he says, Uh I can put this stuff on the big screen. He was cheap. He was affordable. People were like... Instead of getting out talking with two people in a room, we could have giants, giant bugs, and this and that. 
And it was a novelty that people maybe not have believed it because it was believable on screen, but it was just the idea. Like, even as a kid, you're like, wow, look, what would it be like? You know what I mean? It's uh-huh. it's you know, like somebody just said, at least it gets the point across. Yeah, it's not like we, we could follow the story. We knew what was going on. We were getting just enough. And yeah, some of the mat work, uh, some of the, the double screen stuff. It's better than Attack of the 54 Woman, but, you know, it's not the best, but it's enough to, like you said, get the point across. You never really, I never felt taken out of everything. I, I felt like I was able to follow what was going on and what we were supposed to see on. And my brain kind of fills in the blanks anyway. Sure. The back of his head looks a little transparent in one shot, but okay. Yeah, so it's, not, it's it's very, you know, back then, again, we look at it with such a trained eye. Everybody has seen a million movies now with VFX that are perfect and have thousands of people on them. But you think about uh-huh. one guy, his wife helped him a lot with the visual effects and his daughter was in a lot of things. It was a very family affair. Very, very little money. I mean, these movies were hardly made for anything. I, again, just to reach for that kind of goals is very admirable. You know what I mean? And he, and he didn't have any shame or anything like, oh, it was transparent or whatever. He did the best he could do. And he, and he I think rightfully so, was proud of his accomplishments. You know, looking like, like a... Um, the mystery science thing, those guys are looking at it 30, 40 years later than it was made. They're looking at it as an audience now, and you really can't. You know, it's very hard to put yourself in that mindset. You know, like, it's like you say creature, you'll see a zipper, you'll see this and that, you know it's a suit. You know, you gotta not look at that, you gotta say, you know, put yourself in that mindset. It's not necessarily easier to do. I, um, when I was looking at bird stuff, it was funny, because I know, uh, 65 just opened. You know, yeah. and it's, you know, the, the guy uh, lands on a, a thing with dinosaurs. I'm thinking about Gordon's first feature was King Dinosaur. And it was basically about a planet coming into the atmosphere of Earth where astronauts go, you know, they go there and they find dinosaurs. And they blow it out. I'm thinking, like, it's the same movie. It's just better special <laughs> effects. It's the same basic plot. I'm thinking, like, you know, and that was so, you know, what was it, uh, 1955. Yeah. So, um, well, as far as the Amazing Colossal Man, I found out stuff that's interesting to me, and it's just like, before we talk about what we actually got with Bird Eye Gordon, and um, what we would have gotten is amazing. It's like, originally, they bought, the, I think it was Nicholson from AIP. He um, got the rights to this thing, The Nth Man, which was this serialized novel in like the 1920s, I think it was. And okay. I read this. It was It's a very bizarre story. It's about a giant that rises from the ocean, uh, does mayhem replaces like the sphinx with other heads and stuff like that and it's going to destroy oh, wow. things it's a, it's like basically a human kaiju which is basically what the amazing colossal man was at the time which true. hadn't been done yeah. before um hadn't really been done like that before oh actually that's not true because they dr cyclops had done it once before yeah yeah as far okay. as a giant human but this was really odd because the, i guess the scientist in this movie, or the scientist son, he was experimenting with turtle glands or something like this. So the the man, the colossal man, is I think two miles high, two miles high. Oh wow! And he has like a turtle skin, like protective skin, because of being the turtle hormone. It was very very bizarre. So how they? Uh, yeah. So I, I think they basically it looks like all they did was say, "Let's make a big guy, a giant." That seems like the only thing they really took from that. And I even know at the end, he just like sings under the waves because he realizes, 
I'm too big and bad that nobody's going to be a threat to me and I'm too smart that he basically just says, all right, he, dis he sets everybody straight and then disappears back in the ocean. That's basically that story. So there was very little of it in The Amazing Colossal Man. So it didn't really matter, I guess, if he had the rights or not. You know, the, f the funny thing is that Bird Eye Gordon, this was his first AIP picture, and he had literally the same year directed The Cyclops, which is another, you know, testing ground, which was about a guy who winds up um, crashing his plane in this valley, which was Bronson Caves. And he wanted to... Because, of course, it was. <laughs> the radiation from the rocks winds up making him grow. And because of the damage from the plane, one of his eyes is missing. And it's pretty decent, mate. Well, it's a mate. <laughs> it, you know, for what it is, though. For what it is. But it is basically yeah. kind of like the Colossal Man, you know, and then this guy, Dean Parker, play, played him. Um, and later on would play the Colossal Man of the sequel. But it kind of made, probably made them think he's the right man for the job. And it's funny that the Cyclops was released only a month before the Amazing Colossal Man. So that kind of was interesting, wow. just like in theaters like that. Um, Bird Eye Gordon, Mr. Big, which Kenny would like this. Forrest Ackerman gave him that name. Yeah, oh, Big, okay. Okay. Interesting, Bird Eye Gordon, and it fit with all the giant things that he, you know, movies that he did. Um, but yeah, so the Ant Man was kind of really interesting because I was always fascinated what that genesis of that was. So they get the rights, uh, AIP gets the rights, they're going to make this movie, they bring Bird Eye Gordon, and they, they originally they get Ch Chuck Griffith to write it, you know, who wrote. A lot of the other AIP movies, you know, Tiger Crab Monsters, that kind of thing. Um, Little Shop of Horrors, I believe uh -huh. he wrote. And get this, they, it was going to start Dick Miller as the Amazing Colossal Man. Oh, that would be weird. It was going to be a comedy. He Chuck Griffith made it a comedy, and it was going to be as Dick Miller as the Amazing Colossal Man. I wanted to, I didn't have enough time. I wanted to go on something like Mid Journey AI and see what the heck. Dick Miller would look like as the Amazing Colossal Man. Then I kind of looked. Oh, and wow. Said, I don't really want to see Dick Miller as the Amazing Colossal Man. <laughs> <laughs> so if anybody out there wants to give it a shot, go ahead. But uh, that would have been really, <laughs> as far as what we didn't get, that would have been really, really interesting. Yeah. Um, I guess his co-writer, uh, his co-writer, I forgot his name offhand, but he wound up writing the movie with Bird Eye Gordon. I guess Chuck Griffith worked with, it was funny because Chuck Griffith worked with, uh, Bird Eye Gordon for one day. And then he said, Chuck, uh, Gordon was just over his shoulder every five minutes. He said, yeah, I couldn't take it anymore. He only lasted as a writer for one day. And then he gave it to his writing partner. He said, you deal with, uh, Gordon. <laughs> wow. So, so that was interesting. So, and so again, I, I am a big fan of what we never got. I love pre-production artwork. I love first drafts of scripts. They tend to be the most uh -huh. interesting before people, I guess, come to their senses and like, we can't do that. <laughs> you know, it's true though. It's like, you know, it, it's like, they're like, oh, we can't do that. We can't show that. They usually take the most chances. They're usually the most imaginative and it always gets watered down. So I'd love to be able to track down if it exists, what this, you know, script would have been. But, but yeah, and I, I get Dick Miller, you know, with, uh, you know, that would have been, yeah. Do we want to see Dick Miller in an adjustable sarong? I, I you know, know. And then, so we get we get the Amazing Colossal Man with Glenn Langdon playing him. He, the only other movie I saw him in, he's done other roles, was the Mutiny in Outer Space, and he played like a colonel. And that one has this weird space fungus attacking a uh, space station. But that's the only thing I've ever seen him in. I know he's done more things, but this was his stand standout role. 
And uh, uh-huh. this was the one that he, I guess, couldn't live down because it made you know this is the one that made him um, either love his acting career or hate it. Um, <laughs> you know, and I, and I thought he was really great in this. Again, it does push it, but Bird Eye going to every one of his movies, he made them serious. He really wanted them to be serious fantasies and said, "This is what I want to show." And technologically, right. again. You know, he might not have been able to pull him off. He he was really proud of the fact of calling himself as a writer, director, VFX artist. It was all like you said. A lot of it is, is rear screen projection. A lot of shots of actors in front of screens. Uh, where they projected, he's a translucent screen that project the image in the back, and it saves a lot of money. They don't have to send people to Las Vegas. They don't have to do this and that. They can put them in front of a screen. It's tough to match the lighting, and you can usually tell it because of the grain of the film, because, again, we're not talking digital techniques back then. Um, but that was something he used a lot. He also used split screen, where it's always fun, I thought, when I started visual effects, finding out where the line was. Like, where they... Yeah. Like, every slit you see yeah. the old movies where people are double, playing the same role. Um, the best... One of mm-hmm. them masterfully, I think, was um, Incredible Shrinking Man, which this was definitely riding off the coattails of that you know and that was a big studio picture you know universal but this uh that had very great where the line is um when i was watching um earth vs. the spider the other day you can kind of see the mats on the trees and where it's split and a lot of that is because they're using the cameras again it was filmed that the plates are registered so they move around they have cave weave the film as it goes through the camera yeah, moves man. a little bit we don't have motion tracking and and um where we can lock off the camera and stabilize it. So that kind of gives it away when you see one area moving. But, you know, again, we're, we're watching it now, though, knowing how it's done today and right. how it can be done. And, you know, you said earlier, kind of thinking about it from the standpoint, or we kind of alluded to thinking about these movies from the standpoint of when they were released and when they came out and what was possible and that sort of thing. And... That's one of my favorite things to do. It's one of the reasons I love these movies so much is I, it's so easy for me to, when I put something in, to slip myself into that mindset. Be like, yeah, sure, some of the, the effects by modern day may look a little cheesy, but back then they didn't. You know, a lot of it is that it's that child sensibility. You know, I think anybody creative has that inner child, and I think that's what it is. When I first saw this on my uh, Aunt Jenny's couch and was watching this, I was enthralled. I didn't think at all that it was fake or real. Now, as an adult, I'll look at things, even bigger movies, and I can tell, especially being a visual effects artist, I can tell how things were done. And it definitely gets rid of that innocence. And I think that's where it is. You have to look at it and say, you know, you don't look about how real it was done. I always look at what's the idea they're trying to accomplish. And it's like, if they get that on screen, um, one thing that is interesting that, again, they call it like sloppy work, like the uh, Colossal Band is invisible or is translucent and transparent in some shots and that is basically because they didn't generate a second map so when they you know composited this thing but again it's all done in camera it's all done very cheap um there are later movies that are much more worse like food of the gods where they have these attacking um wasps and they didn't even use the image of the wasp they used the holdout mat that was supposed to have the wasp matted to it but they just went with the silhouette of the bug you know, um, that happened also in a movie that Willis O'Brien did, which was um, The Black Scorpion, where they ran out of money. Right. They ran out of money and they were like, oh, let's just put the, the, uh, the mat in. So all of a sudden you just see black mats of the the uh, 
you know, things. So I don't think necessarily that was sloppy work. I think that this was a lot of this stuff is one take. This is all you have. Does it get the point across? Will it work? And audiences, believe me, did not notice, or even if they noticed, they did not care. It was fun. Well, and also they were a lot of times these movies were one and done for people. Yes. They, they'd see the movie in the theater and that was it. It would be years later before stuff like this would start being shown on television. And years later before the VHS tapes started coming out. So, you know, you see these movies once, you see the one shot with the back of his head being a little transparent. You might not even remember it by the time the movie's over. No, it, if it's, you even it, notice. It's, it's the overall impression you get as, wow, I saw something yeah, yeah. that, again, you know, you, you can't really judge on how it was the competence. That idea saying, I've seen something I never saw before. You know what I mean? Um, he did a lot of macro photography and like the, the giant insect bugs. And they're all have the same thing. Sometimes the legs disappear through the mat and things like that. That's inherent in the process. It's not like it was today where you can refine it and go over it and digitally do it. These were photographic processes. You had to put the film together in an optical printer. And you had to exactly. so like he had to do double exposures. You, you know, you're reaching. Go and watch. Um, go and watch pre-special edition Star Wars and you'll see the green box outlines just faintly behind every spaceship as it's flying around. It's just an artifact of the process. Well, I know you were talking just, uh, recently about yeah. um, Ghostbusters. And Ghostbusters, yeah. they, they move. When you look at the plates like the Mac, you see the buildings move the same way they did back then because it's film yeah. process and it's natural to the film process. But you're not supposed to be. I mean, I think you go to the wrong mindset looking, oh, that doesn't look real. That doesn't look real. That doesn't look real. I mean, look at what's being presented and say, well, again, it's that mindset, you know, and I think we've lost a lot of that. I think everything's so, you know, like, you know. It's got to be realistic. It's got to be so realistic. And if one thing is... One thing is off and everyone's just like, no, that's not how that works. You know, so, 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 yeah. I, I do want to interject here real quick. And I, I don't know if she can hear me or not. While we were watching the movie, um, like I said, Beth came in about halfway through and they kept talking about the Boulder Dam and Beth kept saying, but they're in Las Vegas. Right. It should be the Hoover Dam. Why are they going to the Boulder Dam? And I, I did double check. I just found out. It was called the Boulder Dam back then. It didn't get changed back into the Hoover Dam until 1947. It was the Boulder Dam at that point. Yeah, that's something I didn't. That's something I didn't know. So, you know, yeah. So, because uh, yeah, the Boulder Dam kind of implies, you know, Colorado, because <laughs> um, Boulder, you know. But no, apparently it was called the Boulder Dam before they renamed it to the Hoover Dam in 47. So, uh, just found that out. Anyway. Yeah, there's so much going on in this movie. You know, it is a pretty basic plot. Guy gets hit by a bomb. Total incredible Hulk origin story here, kind of. Which, it didn't occur to me until watching this. Yes. And I, when, like I said, Beth came into the last half of the movie, and I told her, it's like, okay, so the guy got killed with a bomb and maybe radiated. And she said, so the Incredible Hulk him. Didn't even occur to me. When I think of yes. the Incredible Hulk, and maybe that makes me a bad comic book fan, too. But I think in The Incredible Hulk, I think Jekyll and Hyde, maybe a little bit of Wolfman, didn't even occur to me that maybe this led to some of the inspiration that Sam Lee and company took when they created The Incredible Hulk, because it's totally that. Guy goes running out onto the test field because he's going right. to save somebody who's in who's going to get blasted by the bomb. He goes out there to save him, and uh, because of his heroic deed, his sacrifice, he gets irradiated by plutonium. Ooh. <laughs> and gets turned into the amazing Klaus. I didn't even 
find the incredible well, yeah, Hulk connection. At, at this then. time, again, this again, this is where the science comes in. Nobody knew. Everybody had these atomic bomb fears. Nobody knew what it could do. Now you could rule all that out because the scientific back then it was this mysterious thing. It's like earlier it was first it was alchemy in the old early movies that it was mysterious. Then uh, for Frankenstein, the only reason Frankenstein, in the book it was more alchemy, but then for the movie it's electricity because electricity was that magic part of it. When they went to this, it was then it's the atomic age. Everything's blamed on atomics. Then from moving on from that, now we would started to do environmental and it started being climate change changes these things. So it's, it's indicative of the time and it's happening to that fear people have of what's going to happen to me and nobody knew. So nobody could really say, is this going to happen or not? The radiation was so, it, you know, it was it was mysterious, it was scary, it was what was powering the atomic bombs, but it also was supposed to be better. Yeah, it's well, I th I think really neat stuff. We had spoke earlier about um, another one of my favorite movies, Day the World Ended. And when I was a yeah. child, I, I swear, when I had to tune it in on a VHS channel, and it was all staticky. And I remember getting close to the TV, and I'd fix the aerial, and I'd see the monster, through the three-eyed monster, through the static, and then I'd back away. And I was feeling like... They're talking about, you know, all the radiation. And I'm thinking the, the TV is magical. Is it radiation? I'm thinking the static is like the radiation. So oh, no. I, I would go in the mirror. I'd put it on. I'd go in the mirror and see my change in it or nothing. And I remember putting on oven mitts to adjust the antenna just of that fear. No, no, I'm just a young kid. But I'll, I'll never forget that. And I think that's the kind of thing, like, again, this stuck with me. The beginning of this movie... It's funny, like I said, it starts amazing because uh -huh. it starts with they're going to set they're in a trench. They're going to set off the military, the first plutonium bomb, which is funny because all atomic bombs, uh, they say something about, he goes, well, bombs have been set off before atomic bombs. He goes, not like this, this is plutonium bomb. Of course, all atomic bombs are made with plutonium. So, <laughs> sure. But a plane crashes. Um, they have the tower. They're in a foxhole. He tells everybody he's the uh whatever, Colonel, and he's saying, stay in the foxhole. This is a test detonation. First time it was set off, there's a bomb tower. And basically, they set it, they start it to detonate, and it has this beeping sound. Beep, beep, beep. God, Steady did that beeping. make you think of them? It, did that remind you of them at all? Yeah. It was just very, yeah. very, you know, it was, it was a fantastic choice, I think, a directing choice. Because it was uh -huh. totally directing choice of the sound. And a plane goes off course and he's watching it through um, binoculars. It crashes by the tower. And Glenn Hanged a hero who we get through flashbacks later what kind of a hero he was, like a war hero. He's not going to let this pilot die. He goes, you can't just leave a man out there. And even though he's telling his uh, troops to stay put, he jumps out of that foxhole without hesitation and runs to rescue the man. He's about, and the whole time you hear it beep, 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 and then about halfway there, the beeping stops, and you're like, oh my God, because he has that expression on his face, and you're like, that's where my heart jumped, and that's what I was saying before, as a child, I'd have nightmares of this. Yeah, he knew, have, man. Like, he knew. And yeah. He was, it was, and then there's a blinding white flash of light, and he instinctively covers his eyes, which I thought was great that he didn't go blind then. Covers his eyes. Now, of course, he would be obliterated. Oh, but yeah. But if we get past oh, yeah. that, he is basically, the screen whites out, 
for a split second, and then you see him in this incredibly horrific makeup that I think is amazing. Um, this guy, really his good. name is Schaefer, did the makeup. It is this incredibly burn makeup. He has no hair. He's scarred all over his body. It's extremely gruesome, and color would have been even more horrifying. His his All of the hair is burned off of him. All of his clothes, what's remaining, are really ripped and tattered. You know, way more than the Incredible Hulk. Uh, but it was really, really horrific. Then they cut to a scene of him in the hospital, and it is... I guess if you had severe burns, this is as accurate as you can get. I mean, they're peeling back the things, and it looks... It's chilling. It's horrific. Again, really suspenseful sequence. That was my favorite sequence in this whole movie because it's just so accurate. And again, people didn't know what this would do, what the atomic bomb would do. It had those Hiroshima vibes, I felt. Yeah. And that, yeah you know, as totally. far as the photographs, the historic photographs of what that would be like. Um, the funny, the Better funny thing about it is, I guess the director and the producers like this shot so much, they show it like four times through the movie, or at least three times. They showed initially, then they show later on when they're like, "Well, we have the footage of the blast," and then they show it again, like all of the the high brass is watching the explosion again. Then <laughs> I guess the girlfriend comes in, no, the you know the fiance comes in and like, "Let's show her what happened." Right. Then they have a then they have a dream sequence where he's reliving it, and now he's even seeing it in his head, which I don't even know how that works. That he would even see himself, see it, but and it it also turned up in the sequel. But again, it was very effective makeup, and um, this the, there is a flashback later on that shows um when he's the colossal man and he's knocked out, he's having these hallucinations that shows him in the war. I guess it's World War Two. It has a really uh graphic thing where one of his buddies gets bayoneted in the back and yeah. there's blood and it's very violent full detail and then he shoots the guy that, that bayoneted his friend in the face there's blood <laughs> and stuff and I'm thinking again this is the 1950s early that was pretty you know looking at it now he would go like okay that was pretty shocking because again their mind would fill in the blanks and you know a lot of that they wouldn't show it on the screen so um the fact that they did that makeup-wise, I thought was was pretty, you know, was just pretty amazing. And I thought he pulled it off better just as a makeup artist in my early career. I just don't know how you would do it any better. It totally looked accurate, like skin was peeling off and you could just do the skin grafts and everything else. It was a very, when they were trying to, like, wrapping them up and everything, just it was so visceral. I don't know if it's quite the right word I'm looking for here, but... It was really good. It felt very it was really painful, effective. and I, I know they uh, they used the uh, air cannons and they shot ash at them, and and, uh -huh. and little pieces of wood and balsa wood and things. So that's also in there. So you get for some reason like atomic bombs got this associated with this effect of like that glittery stuff, like it, like even the cloud and like the Incredible Shrinking Man. There was always that kind of thing, and I think it works amazingly well, and that also shows. You know something has impact but yeah so when he's laying so he's laying there in a the hospital bed and he has this horrific makeup they bandage him totally from head to toe up and that whole sequence man and then the nurse comes in later and of course they cut the bandages and he doesn't have a scar on him and they really did great i mean again he's still he's bald he doesn't have any hair on him at all um i don't think he's having his eyebrows does he i, I don't Oh, he's, no, he did. He didn't he have did, yeah. But it was interesting because his skin was so clean, like he was newborn. Yeah. And again, they don't know the effects of the bomb. So 
it's interesting the funny the dialogue because they're having this discussion like he has no scratches on him and i think one of the scientists goes what's so unusual about that <laughs> You're like, what do you mean what's so unusual about that and he goes well it has some healing properties and i'm thinking and i'm, I'm i like the fact they start going into <laughs> this is something we can exploit if we could find out what made him heal you know that's a possibility of course it gets immediately dropped when it becomes and then it has this like mystery Again, um, firstly, it's given away by the title, The Amazing Colossal Man, but his um, fiance tries to find out what happened to him. She goes to the hospital, finds out he's re been relocated to the secret military base, and she um, tracks him down there, and when she finally sneaks into the room, sees he's become, you know, I think, the dirty feet tall or whatever, I think, ten, yeah. whatever the first increment is, and um, she screams, she's just horrified, and then he wakes up and he first thinks he's in a dream. But like he's working up after this explosion coming out of a coma, and he picks up a a book and a phone, and he thinks, uh, "Am I in a like what is this?" Then he realizes what happened to him, and his mind is trying to grasp it. And that's where he kind of goes a little, starts going a little off the rails. And um, you know, they give us the explanation that he's growing, you know, a certain increment, you know. Whatever it is, every couple of weeks he's grown a certain increment. I think um, so. That's where that's where the science starts definitely steering getting away. A little, you know, again, yeah. getting a uh, well, kind of, I guess kind of comic booky, but um, I I did find it um, maybe amusing. Isn't quite no, okay, no. You know what? I did find it amusing that when the scientist explaining to the fiance, yes. that he's got the the cutout models that he's pointing out and all that and he starts mansplaining how science works did it woman. remind you of the man stuff that they made fun of in mad May, where he's like you know he, he grew colossal i mean you yes he's like he says a big word and then he's you say it in smaller terms with the woman and you see that in these movies you know what happens you know x amount of your three eyes we have a scene where he's explaining how shade and light works to his fellow scientist woman because well, i love just, the fact i love the fact that I love the fact he just has the audience of the fiance, yet they had these elaborate models of him. Like, this was Glenn when he was 10 feet. This is him when he's 30 feet. This is him when he's, you know, 40 feet. So, so again, I, that's in a lot of these movies is the trope. Um, but it really what was uh -huh. interesting. So the explanation they're given is totally off the wall, is that his cells are increasing, and his old cells are dying off. So, you know, every, every person, their cells... When they grow, you know, if you get a cut, it heals, the old cells die, and they're replenished. You know, we can't quite regrow limbs, unfortunately, but that's a process of bio biology. So he's saying what happens, Glenn Manning, his cells keep growing, and they're not dying off. So that's explaining him getting bigger, which, again, that's a big if. That's not really a weapon. Um, but, but they're saying that his heart, which they say is one muscle, well, one cell, which is not correct at all. <laughs> you know, is it grown proportionally no, through his body? Now, if they just want to cut out that one line of dialogue, I love the idea that his, um, they could have made it maybe some more complex organ. The fact that the, the, um, the heart has to pump blood through a larger body, just gravity and science-wise was great that the blood wouldn't reach his brain as much, which starts being yeah. more of a mental case, more of, um, impaired mentally. You know, that his brain isn't getting enough oxygen at dying. Perfect. That he is in this, you know, which I think that's a great, I thought that was a great way to go. And 
It's when you see him suffering and grabbing his chest later sure. on, he's having like many heart attacks because his heart is struggling to keep up. And I think that gives him sympathy and, and everything else. But it's weird because they seem to drop uh -huh. that. Like he's still wincing in pain. So you know his death is going to come because they say eventually that starts the ticking time bomb, that the ticking clock that he's going to die because his heart's not going to be able to take this. So he is going to die from this. No matter how big he gets, it's going to reach a limit and his heart is going to burst. So they have to kind of um, try to remedy this. But in the meantime, you have like uh, the Invisible Man Syndrome where he starts going megalomaniac and starts getting... And I thought it was a great explanation. Not enough blood flow to the brain. No, that makes sense. You know, it's... Again... And it kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier in terms of like some of the visual effects and then just trying to come up with a way to make it work that extends to the story as well. Right. Trying to come up with a way to make it make sense. Limited blood flow to the brain. Yeah, he's not going to be thinking clearly. Right. I don't know if it's going to turn him into a peeping Tom, but you know, it is going to, you know, it is going to make it to where he's, he's not thinking clearly and mentally he's becoming a real threat well and also guess with the flashbacks it shows that he was a hero but also yeah does like he does get angry at the at the drop of a hat sometimes so he does have that inclination to be angry you know that you know like and he uh -huh. also has the, like both post-traumatic you know stuff going on being a soldier and i think that all adds to his character you know and i think that's why he does he totally does go off the rails and act that way, but that makes him more of a threat and makes him violent. And I know they counteract it with when he's with his fiance, and you know he's got a gentle part to him. And and I know like he says like what what could a man have done to to have this happen? What terrible thing could a man have done to have this happen to him? Because his life uh -huh. was going the right way. He did the right thing in trying to save somebody. And and he and he does it. Start you do you do start getting bitter, I guess. You know, I guess everything and the lack of blood flow. He does start getting bitter. It does become a menace. And they're not really dealing with a guy in his right mind. And that's where he's really, you know, the giant stuff is becoming a threat. Um, one thing which I got I I made a note which I thought was really funny is there's a point when when he's at this military base again. Nobody knows he's there except the the small you know group of soldiers that are there and a delivery truck comes in this is where i like the fact that there's humor in the script as well delivery truck comes in he's delivering like sides of beef and he goes yeah and he goes what's all this for i mean there hasn't been a you know skeleton crew at this place what's all the thing and he goes we like to eat well and he goes come on mister you can confide in me so the soldier goes to him and leans over and goes you know it's for the giant and he goes what do you mean he goes yeah the giant man who's living in the tent behind the bar so I love that tongue of teacher. He's actually telling the truth. And the guy goes, okay, if you don't want to tell me, it drives off. But I like that kind of like, there was a kind of humor in there. And I think, I think Bert was definitely yeah, aware. the giant in the town. Um, you know, of the, of that kind of humor. You know, what what I, what I've got to bring up before, which again, I love the fact that again, we talk about Corman had his little group and Corman was set to direct this as well at, at first, you know, when it was going to be a comedy, but he dropped out. But, um, Paul Blaisdell comes into the picture sure. because the famous monster maker for all of Corman's um, A Hack of the World and Rage of the Saucer Man and, you know, at the Turf from Beyond Space, he actually did all these props. So he did the miniature Bibles. He did the miniature newspapers. Again, it wasn't, you couldn't really go to doll stores and buy that stuff. A lot of it was handmade. A lot of it made out of wood. I read that the Bible, he actually took miniature letters and did them place by place. You know, so he made all the miniature for this um him and his wife and, and and i read that he um 
was really, when he read the script, he was kind of like, but okay, this could be great. I don't have to build a suit. It'll be easier on me. And then he thought about when he read the script, every time Glenn would grow, he'd have to build a different set of props that would all be identical, but different sizes. And he talked to Bird, and Bird was like, you know what we'll do is we'll put down the dialogue that we'll say he grew so-and-so every couple of weeks, so you wouldn't have to do that. You know, we do, and, and so it, it, and again, it, he, uh, Bird hired him because he knew he could do things on the cheap and do them well. Um, was interesting, he also did the uh, props for um, Attack of the Puppet People, which, which again, was a, uh, a Bird Eye Gordon movie, which was kind of funny in the opposite way. I love looking for Easter eggs. In this movie, the fun Easter egg is that in Attack of the Puppet People, they go to the movies and they go to a drive-in. And on screen, they're watching The Amazing Colossal Man. <laughs> in Earth versus the Spider, one of the guys, uh, you know, his father owns the movie theater. He's putting up the marquee. The marquee has Attack of the Puppet People and poster is The Amazing Colossal Man. So he put his own movies in as cameos, which I thought was kind of funny, you know. And then it's funny because even then I know Earth vs. the Spider, which I recently watched, the kid's like, oh, my father just got this new movie, Attack and Puppet People. Sounds like it's really cool. Nice. But yeah, so we've got Glenn now, and he's oversized, and he's living in a tent. I like the way they explained, like, she asked, they couldn't make him nude. So we have the adjustable sarong. Yep. Military engineering. Yep. <laughs> I love the explanation. You know, military you know, ingenuity at its finest. I guess they could have put like obelisks and stuff in his way, like a tank turret or something, which would have been really funny. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, but that would have come across as serious or not. So they put him in the sarong and he does. I'm glad he does bring it up and makes fun of it and says how ludicrous it is. And he goes, army ingenuity. And you think they use the tank. You know, they can do that. And I think that's one of the things people make fun of uh, that he has to wear. But again, they had to do something, you know, you know, with, with that kind of a thing. Though the food, they, you know, they bring him food and of course everything's out of whack. And again, that's Paul Blaisdell and a trick photography. I love the fact that, you know, a sergeant's reading a newspaper and it says, man, survived through Tony Abbasque. And you see him reading the newspaper and it's a down angle. And then it'll cut to an up angle and... He gets the paper from him, now it's a miniature or exact duplicate. So if they keep switching back and forth and changing the angles, Different. it does it effectively works really, really well. Um you know, I think that stuff works better for me than when he's superimposed. I think you so know too. I mean? And it, it it lends to the reality of it all. You know, we Yeah. For all the failings of and I say failings, I mean no disrespect, but for all the the transparent oh. mats or whatever the fact that they actually took the time to try to match props big and small you know the giant syringe for example to make it work between shots and for the most part there's one bit when he's eating like the turkey i feel like the size of the turkey didn't quite match but uh otherwise everything seems to fit and and lended itself to the reality of it and those are tricks that you'd see happen i mean even as recent as like the lord of the rings films or they're just doing different shaped props to make sure the reality was consistent. And I love this. You know what? What's funny is um, my son recently brought up, because I was talking about this when we were watching, it was saying like, um, I was saying that with today's technology and macro cameras, you know what I mean? The stuff uh -huh. that he, uh, Bird Eye Gordon used in those days can be really perfected. I think the giant spider, the men movie, is it? right? Using a real spider, it does, 
it, it does look real. There's an authenticity. Even the beat CGI, and again, you can get everything perfect now. So I think that's an interesting thing. He brought up the fact to me, which I had not realized that, like, Cabin in the Woods did a lot of that with their giant bugs and insects. And they were the same way, reproject, you know, or composited in. Um, which brings us to back to where we were. So they, no, this is the problem with the, the we got to stop them shrinking. I mean, we got to stop the, uh, the, uh, Maze class of Man from growing. And then they're saying, well, what about shrinking them? And like, oh, you know, they come up with this <laughs> idea. And now we have to address the elephant in the room oh, and the camel. Dude. That, you know, okay, this is. And the camel in the room. <laughs> there's some cool stuff in this movie. But one of my absolute favorite sequences is after the scientists have shown off. Look, I figured out how to shrink the elephant and the camel. And they open up the yes. cabinet and they're in there. And they're having their conversation, the scientists and the fiance. And then the one random soldier dude walks in. And he's trying to have a conversation with him to kind of tell him what's going on. But he okay. keeps casting this glance at this cabinet. Like, I'm not going to ask, but what it, but I'm not, but what, what is that? I'm not going to ask, what, what is that? You know, it's just like, they don't pay me enough to deal with this. Look, this is my favorite scene of the whole movie. Yeah, no, I don't. They explain it like, okay, they have this hormone that they can stop his pituitary gland, but then they have this other thing that they, they I guess the army is great at getting things. So they have a camel and an elephant. Yep. They show them in the room, and then they show them again through really cool rear projection. It was kind of like in Tarantula, where yes. they have them in little cages. Yep. And wait, okay, now they have the power to make somebody giant and shrink them. They got the powers of Ant-Man now. Like, they did the military, they totally forget. If I was the military, I would think they totally forget about Glenn. Glenn, sorry. We just we just made this incredible tech that's going to change the world. We could reduce uh you know armies to the side. You know they've got the powers of Ant Man. A uh, poor poor Glenn would have been left by the wayside at this point. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You know, that's true. I, done, so so anyway, so the, I, that's where again the science really like it keeps getting further out there. But it's fun. I mean, you know, again, movies are supposed to be fun. You know, so you know, you know, if you go with it this far. So, so, okay, they're like, okay, we got to find Glenn. And Glenn now was pissed off and he runs away and he's, you know, they're trying to find this giant man. And I know a lot were like, how hard could it be, you know, to find in a hundred, I guess they're having difficulty finding this hundred sixty foot tall giant. Right. But, I, but I'm thinking this, I, I thought of the same thing when I saw Kong Skull Island. It's like, you would think they'd see this thing as big as a mountain range. Yeah. How do you lose? How do you misplace a colossal man? I don't understand that. Yeah. You know, but they get to him and they make this is what's funny too. They make this giant syringe, and this is Paul Blaisdell. And I remember um, Bob Burns, you know, famous prop collector and gorilla suit actor. He's yes. really he worked in a lot of these movies and friends with Paul Blaisdell. And he made a complete replica of a hypodermic needle, you know, a hospital kind, and it worked. He said that this thing you could fill with liquid and it would shoot twenty five feet the of water. You know, it really worked, and it was totally identical. But the funny thing is, is when you see them bring out this hypodermic deal that they're going to jab Glenn with in the ankle, it's like, you're thinking, why does it have the giant holes for, like, giant fingers? <laughs> you know, like, the design of the needle itself seems a little bit like they wouldn't modify it. Again, they're yeah, not... Yeah, they... I thought that too. <laughs> um, so, you know, again, that's so, I guess the famous MST3 thing where... You know, Glenn reaches down, gets the needle, and then he uses it as a dart and impales the guy with it. But, uh, but you know, it does come across as more funny. It's supposed to have been horrific. I don't know if anybody ever thought it was horrific, but it, kept, it does come across as funny, or as, you know, I guess sarcastically funny. You know, I don't know, like, and then and not, it wasn't, wasn't that the, 
Was that a soldier? Was that one of the doctors? Uh, like I he... thought it was the scientist who figured out how to shrink everybody. Yeah, who was a, it? Was a really nice guy. On his yeah, he didn't deserve that. that. You know, <laughs> which is something I'll be totally glanced over. And I think this is really interesting as hell. Is that our good old Harry Archer is the lead scientist in this, who was the philanderer in the you know the attack of the fifty foot woman. He's the scientist in this one, trying to save the colossal man. I thought that was really interesting. <laughs> you know that that he wound up doing you know doing that so i was like okay so that's an- another bit of you know casting stuff Good but stuff, uh, anyway that goes wrong and then all of a sudden i guess like any normal colossal man is like i'm gonna hit you know the gambling machines i'm gonna hit the slots and he goes to vegas you know and again las vegas is realized very much by rear screen projection of people shooting at Vegas. Three, it's sad because again, limited budget. Three or four extras in front of a screen. You know, acting at the screen, which I guess is very much like the volume now, like for Mandalorian where it's actors. One thing's good is actors can basically see what they're reacting to. So I guess you would think the performance would be better. I guess it's just the limitations because again, it's lighting. You know what it is. It also has, like you were saying, he peeks in a window, which is the King Kong thing, and he sees a girl taking a bath, which, again, gets to that salaciousness, and they needed some kind of, you know, some kind of action for somebody watching the movie so they don't fall. Like, okay, we're losing the audience. They're falling asleep. Let's show the woman in the bath. And that, that was the interesting eye candy. But but it's like a lot of it's done that way. Um, And then Paul Blaisdell, again, they made the miniatures of all these landmarks from Las Vegas. A lot of them aren't there anymore. The Golden Slipper, then they had the Royal Front, the Crown. (laughs) And he made all these miniatures, a lot of them out of, like, plywood, balsa wood, and a lot of the neon, again, they painted with reflective paint to get that neon look. They were black and white. They could get away with it. They didn't have, they didn't want to do miniature neon, again, too expensive. Um, So kind of when you see them tear apart, you can see you know, what it is, you know, the smoking cowboy, but again, it's fun. It's a novelty. It gives the, I guess it gives a reference to how tall he is because you know how tall these icons were. That's true. You know, it does give you a reference point. You're right. And I always thought it was interesting. He actually had that giant cowboy, which I forgot what um, casino he was and he smoked the cigarette. And I just thought it was funny that he met somebody his same size. You know what I mean? Just to see that that kind of a thing. There's a great effect of the, about a palm tree that he grabs up when people are looking at him and he throws at them. And that's a six-foot miniature palm tree. And all of the leaves were made of rubber and it looks totally real, I think. It looks it looked like... Because I originally thought, did they get a tree from a crane and throw it? But it was a giant six-foot prop that Paul Plaisdell, you know, did for that. And again, they're working with limited means. You know, I, everything going on. I guess... Uh, Denver kind of like, that's it. They're, they're, he's hurt. Uh, I don't think he's killed the nitty at this part besides the guy with the dart. Right. But he's a, you know, a menace to life and limb. I, I love they had the news reporter and he opens up the window and perfectly framed is <laughs> the 60-foot giant. You know, the colossal man, you know. Um, I thought that was kind of funny. So it is very stagey and stuff like that. But again, it's just somebody showing off, you know, you know these thing effects and it's fun. It's so good. and It's just a fun movie. Uh, there's a lot of things that, like you said, towards the end, it does kind of go off the rails. But at that point, the buy-in is already there. You've been along for the ride already. So, you know, you're not... I didn't feel thrown off. Sure. I'm going to go over the window and see if I can see the amazing Colossal Man rampaging through Las Vegas. Oh, there he is. You know, yeah, it's coincidental or whatever, but I still loved it. Real quickly, he winds up... um 
at the Boulder Dam, within the Boulder Dam, he winds up, he gets his girlfriend, like, uh, King Kong, winds up putting her down, the minute he puts her down, they blast him, he winds up falling off the dam, and he dies, and that's the end of it. That's it. Until the sequel, where he washes up in Mexico, <laughs> you know, and this mystery's there, and then he find out there he is, played by a different actor, you know, who now, he has no dialogue, so he has this makeup, and... I know my son's sleeping on the couch for like the War of the Colossal Beast. All you hear is, <laughs> and he was like, what the heck are you watching? This movie, you cannot sleep through, Dad. What is it? And it was, you know, it was the same actor that actually played the Cyclops. And it, it is, so if you want to get on somebody's nerves, just put the sound on to War of the Colossal Beast. Again, it's great makeup. Glenn has half his face destroyed. Um, 90% of that movie, or at least 50% of flashbacks from the first movie. Uh-huh. I know the first movie, I think it's available on YouTube, but if you want to get a whole recap, it's kind of like Evil Dead. You can watch the second one. The recap of the War of the Colossal Beast gives you all of that, except now he's totally deranged because, again, he has this fall. Half his face is gone. Again, a great makeup job. He winds up terrorizing kids at the um, <laughs> Griffith, Griffith Observatory, which when I first moved to L.A., I went there, and I always have the memories. He's holding a school bus. It's iconic with that thing um and they have this great uh dialogue in there about what government agency is responsible for him now so it has that more comical take it's a, it's again it's another fun movie and at the end of what's interesting he grabs himself and commits suicide graves electrical lines and for a split second it turns the color and you see what he looks like which I remember thinking, how cool is this? I could paint my action figure or my model of the Amazing Colossal Fan. I know the colors now. Because in these black and white movies, you never knew what the color was. Right. Split instant. But but the sequel, I think, you know, again, it's it's I think it's a pale imitation of the first yeah, one. Yeah, the first one's so much better. And the second one's great, but the first one's a classic. It doesn't have yeah. that character, but I'm telling you. Yeah. You don't get you know, his butt. Yeah, Glenn Manning. It's not even the same actor at that point, too. I mean, it's totally... No, it's it's funny because actually it's the in the sequel, it's the actor that played the in the Cyclops. <laughs> you know, which is funny because, again, he doesn't say any dialogue. I think he says one word, Joyce, at the end. And he and his, his fiance's gone. I guess she's going to... Uh, probably with the doctor. That's what I... Had to yeah, watch. it really... That that was the first thing out of Beth's mouth when we sat down. She's like, geez, dude, moving in on her. <laughs> you don't want to cure that guy. You want to, you know, you want to move in on the girlfriend. So. Well, we got to do more of these. But again, it's a fun encapsulation of the 50s. And again, so it's nice. a guy. I like, uh, there's a, uh, you only have, there's been a big man Japan movie, which is totally bonkers. That I've has a that. giant, I've that's a that. giant man, right? But again, it's not really used as much, giant man. But this is very much like, you know, it's the inverse of Incredible Strength, man. What would it look like to grow? How would it affect you? You're out of sorts. I mean, you're a, you're a tall guy yourself. So you dealt with this on some issue. You'll be like being over six feet, but can I you imagine? I'm bald too now. I wonder. See, it's <laughs> a plutonium. You know, many plutonium cakes. Maybe a Beth made you plutonium cake has slipped it in there. Like, I'll ask. I'll ask. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, but a lot of fun. And again, Thank you, Bird Eye Gordon, for doing these kind of movies. Uh-huh. I mean, I like all of them. Um, even some, again, you know, Food of the Gods, Empire of the Ants, they're very outrageous. And again, I kind of look at, you know, I can look at uh, something like Empire of the, uh, what is it, Empire of the Ants or Food of the Gods and look at it like I look at Harryhausen's movie. Which sure. When you, look at, when you looked at Harryhausen's last movie, compared it against Star Wars, you could see a discrepancy in effects. It was uh, aged. Sure. 
And it was still age, but again, it was fun. It's like, you got giant ants. Like, I think I mentioned this on the other one. I would love to be in the world with a giant people and giant ants and giant bugs. It'd be dangerous, but I, I like the idea of what that possibly could have been like. Science, as smart as it is, dampens a lot of the imagination. You know, I think explanations just ruin, ruin it. I think in this movie, you don't want to hear the explanation. I would be more like the military guy. Like, I don't want to know. <laughs> that guy walked into the I don't want to know. I'd like to know what's possible. I wouldn't want it to happen to me, but <laughs> but you know, I, I'm really grateful that I got an opportunity to talk to this about you. I know it's been on our list. We have the brain eater still out there. Yep, yep. So, um, so we'll get on that. I think there's a couple more we had talked about. I think uh, a lot probably again. This kind of era is my uh, comfort food. You know, I love all the stuff. I love it all. I mean, and people know that, but. The 50s, man, that's the stuff that I can just put in. And, and again, know, I love what, what would have been and what's the alternatives and what would have yeah. been up with. You know what I mean? And it is a mixed movie. Again, it doesn't have, it made money. It, it made its money back and made enough for a sequel. It did really, really well for AIP. And Bird Eye Gordon made a sequel and continued. It started his career off with AIP and he made Earth vs. the Spider, Attack of the Puppet People, all of those because of the, you know, and again, he was cheap. He was very, he could show spectacle with very little money. And that, that is a feat in itself as opposed to like Cecil B. DeMille, where you have unlimited funds, make whatever you want. He tried to, and, and I, again, I think people give him credit because those were the movies she wanted to see. He was trying to talk out of these. People talked him out and said, do you really want to try that? You might not be able to do it. And he was like, I want to see it. I'm going to do it. Whether, you know, it's going to not, I think young filmmakers even like Joshua Kennedy and the people that just their homegrown stuff. Uh -huh. They go for that. They don't care. It's the experience of making it. He's like, that's what I want to see. You yeah. know, and it, experience of making it and having fun with it and trying to be serious with it. You know, again, you've got to judge it by the era it was made. And I think visual effects are like that. And again, there's a lot of extenuating circumstances on how something appears or not. Um, very minimal budget. And again, I, I just admire that filmmakers. And Bert makes you smile, even if it's a goofy smile. And I think that's why even MST3K, the best episodes of these episodes, because there's so much fun to watch. And even if it gives you a smile, I'm sure he wasn't put down. I know he wasn't a big fan of mystery science at all, you know. Um, but again, you got to chuckle at some of the stuff and, and some of the in, in jokes. It's all know. fun. It's yeah. just all fun. It yeah. is. And, and I think that's that's what film should be. Go. Yeah you know, fun in that whole era. But again, I appreciate you having me on again. Yeah, this has been fun. We got to do this again. This, this was sure. awesome. For sure. And I love looking in and finding out. It makes me revisit these myself. You know, again, to me, it's that, like I said, it's a comfort food. It gets you back to... Indeed. You know, so if you're on a rainy day, you want to watch it. It makes a great double feature, but it's fun. It's popcorn chomping movies. I'd love to see this on the big screen. I know he, in 2001, I hosted this on the big screen. You know, uh, Bird Eye Gordon, and it's like, oh, man, and I and Frizzly didn't get to meet him. But again, it's just that innocence, and he was pulling no punches, and he didn't make any apologies for his work. He said, it is what it is. I did the best they could under these circumstances. It is hard making a movie. And to be able to say, I'm going to be trying to give you this fantasy stuff. Not a lot of filmmakers are doing fantasy stuff at that time. Again, no, it's just the Hollywood fair. They didn't even touch it till later on. And again, you know, Drive to a driving audience, this must have been like magic and fun and just been like oh, that was a fun evening. Be amazing you know? to see that on the yeah. All right, man. Well, I do appreciate you doing this, man, and uh, this will be going out this week. So rest in peace, Mr. Big. Thank you for all the movies. Yeah, rest in peace, Mr. Big. Thank you. Thank you. And Joe, thanks for doing this, man. Well, 
not wait so long until the next time we got lots of stuff to do. No, well, we have a lot of things to work on. I know you have that wedding. Congratulations, but I will I have that wedding thing. You. Yeah, I have send that you a message. <laughs> I will definitely be in contact with you before that. It's it's coming up really soon. Yeah, less you than know, thirty you know days. What it is? In your head, just think beep beep. <laughs> and all of, a sudden, all of a sudden the people stop and you'll be in that theater and you'll be facing Beth <laughs> thank you to the Adam Jacks to Joe, to Kenny, to Mark and to you for being part of this week's episode of Monster Kid Radio I love having y'all here I love talking about these movies you know, no matter what happens in my life these monster movies are always going to have a place and conversations about these monster movies are a big part of why I love these movies. I love talking about these movies and hearing about these movies from other people and just getting passionate about these movies with people. And that's what I love about Monster Kid Radio. Monster Kid Radio has afforded me the opportunity to talk to so many fans of classic and not-so-classic monster movies. I love it. So thank you for everything that you've done for me. Also, if you want a little extra thanks, share this post on Facebook or retweet it. Or get involved with our various social medias on Twitter, our Facebook page, our Facebook group, our Discord, our Reddit, our Patreon. Or, you know what? You can even submit feedback to the show and hear your missive or voice on an upcoming episode. Email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or call and leave us a voicemail at 360-524-2484. This is, of course on our website over at monsterkidradio.net where you're going to find links to everything that we've talked about on this episode of the podcast and you're going to find a link to the Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards. I know I talked about this last week, but I'm going to keep mentioning it because, well, you know, maybe you didn't listen to last week's episode or you kind of fast-forwarded when I went on my 10-minute diatribe about how I really wish I had received my actual Hall of Fame award in the mail by now. Uh, or, uh, yeah, anyway, <laughs> check out RondoAward.com and check out the entire ballot. You don't have to vote in every category at the Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards. Vote in just the categories that you're interested in. I really hope you vote in the best podcast category. And of course, I'd love to ask for your support as well in that category. But please check out the entire ballot and vote for what you think was the best in classic or monster kid media last year even if it's not monster kid radio anyway check out rondoaward.com for that and again there will be a link in the show notes you know what else you're going to find on our website an announcement about what's coming up next week and yes i even know what that's going to be we're going to be talking about the hammer film the abominable snowman with peter cushing and forrest tucker that's coming up next week here on the show, and I'm going to be joined by a friend of the show. They haven't been on the show in a while. Kelly Hogaboom is going to be joining me next week to talk about that movie. And they have some really interesting thoughts and insights about the movie that I hadn't considered before talking with them. So this should be a good time. I'm looking forward to sharing that conversation with you next week. The week after that, I don't know what we're going to be doing yet. I do have some things in the bank, so to speak. Plus, you're going to be getting some Steve Turek episodes in the future as well, because as Joe mentioned, and as I've talked about in the past and on various social media platforms, I'm getting married on April 8th. The closer we get to the wedding, the more time I'm going to have to spend getting ready for said wedding. And because of that, Steve Turek, who, you know, he 
he offered, I didn't have to ask, he just offered to produce some guest-hosted, I guess, episodes or recordings for the show. So you'll probably be getting some Steve Turek-flavored goodness on upcoming episodes of Monster Kid Radio. If you want to kind of get ready for that, though, check out his podcast, the Diecast Movie Podcast, just to kind of get a feel for what he's doing, especially the Hammerama episodes that he does with Alistair. Just great stuff, man. Check that out. Anyway, the Abominable Snowman. Until then, remember, the Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to Uranium Sunrise. That is copyright 2023, The Atom Jacks. Check out their releases over at theatomjacks.bandcamp.com or look up The Atom Jacks on Facebook at facebook.com slash theatomjacks to see what they've got going on. They've got at least five upcoming detonations or appearances coming up over in the UK. Check them out and let them know the Monster Kid Radio Sun Chip. My name is Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao.